Have you visited maps.org lately to check out everything that's going on in the maps world and to sign up for the e-newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest news and information and updates on everything? Please do maps.org. podcast episode 18 i'm zach leary your host so happy that you're here for another episode of the maps podcast and here we all are this week we have an original episode with dr ben sessa who beamed into the podcast via cyberspace from the united kingdom and yes like i said on the last podcast definitely i'm setting the intention to bring you more original episodes um, to sort of contrast the balance and the output of all the archival material that we are putting out, which is, of course, very important. But it's great to get some current voices as well. And Ben is just fantastic. And being based in the United Kingdom, he uh, illuminated a lot of things I guess I was aware of if I really thought about it. But um, because I don't live there, they weren't top of mind. He illuminated a lot of the problems that are inherent to the United Kingdom that may be a little bit different than what we are dealing with here in the United States. And I just, I found it so, so fascinating in his perspective on um, the steps to success and what we need to do, not just from a scientific perspective and a research perspective, but also from a cultural perspective and how um, perception and the way we carry ourselves and the way we uh, integrate ourselves into society is just as important an element as any other, uh, as anything else that we're working with in the, uh, the wonderful um, and expansive and very um, fertile time that is the modern psychedelic renaissance. And I just was at this event actually in Oslo, Norway, and somebody said that it is a very good time to be into psychedelics right now. The water is warm. There are many lifeguards around. It's a great time to come out of the closet and, uh, and make yourself known and share with others what you've gotten from this method. So we're going to get on with Ben in a second. But first, I wanted to read something that uh, I found uh, from somebody I met on the Internet who wrote um, a paper on Medium, an article on Medium, about her relationship with microdosing. As a society, we're departing from the traditional healthcare model and searching for the sources of our pain and discomfort. In traditional and still modern medicine, death is failure and illness is bad. Mental health is still a taboo and there's no reason to help people who are visibly healthy or physically fit. But I've come to find that death is natural, illnesses can lead to growth, and that improving our health starts with self-care. There isn't a pill for every ill, my sickness, like many, stem from an imbalance, a web of causes that tied a messy knot in my mind, like a roadblock. I was addicted to hurting myself, whether it was being taking too many drugs, 
filling my skin with ink, picking up myself, mindless consumption, obsessive routines, and unhealthy dependence on others, ex-lovers particularly. Antidepressants work for many people, but I'm still glad I never took them. I'm not against drugs. In fact, I love drugs. But that's not the story I care to tell. A magical cure doesn't exist. A pill wouldn't heal me. I started seeing a therapist in 2016 thanks to my employers at Clue. And that was one of the catalysts, becoming aware of yourself. The impact of your upbringing in your body is the first step. Then you gather the tools you need to piece together a healthier web. So now back to the question, why am I microdosing? I'm trying out another tool, another experiment towards healing, to love myself after years of self-loathing. This is an ongoing process. Our bodies are changing every second. I'll have to work every day to maintain my balance. We all do. I already notice significant mental and physical benefits. While microdosing, I feel a heightened appreciation and awareness of my surroundings, relationships, and my body. I'm more mindful, focused, and calm. My mind isn't as loud, so I can look out. Most of all, I'm happy. And while I never needed psychedelics to marvel at the odds of simply being here, they're helping me navigate the dark. I already feel the unhealthy mental loops and patterns that drove me to mindless addictions and general setbacks fading away. The knot my mind is untangling, and I'm learning how to live a better life. That is a piece by Erica Avey that I found online. It's on Medium. And if you search for it, it's called Why I'm Microdosing LSD. And that was just an excerpt from it. And as Ben says in the podcast, we need lots more positive, normalized stories of people's experiences with psychedelics. In some ways, this is actually more valuable to, uh, I guess, the powers at large than actual data. You can actually hear and feel and see people living these amazing lives and getting uh, completely altered and doing uh, shifting their consciousness for the better as a result of their experiments with psychedelics. So very, very cool. And uh, yeah, so Dr. Ben Sessa from uh, Mandela Limited in the UK, and uh, he's just fantastic. And uh, he wrote a great book called The Psychedelic Renaissance, which I encourage everybody to check out. It is, uh, it is definitely eye-opening and very well-researched. And he's uh, a medical doctor providing uh, private psychiatric consultations and so much more. And he's a fantastic speaker all around the global psychedelic community. And I highly encourage you to also go on YouTube and check out uh, some of his talks. So here you go, Ben Sessa. Enjoy the podcast. Ben Sessa, welcome to the MAPS podcast. Thank you for doing this. Well, hello, Zach. Very pleased to be here. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And we finally, out of a few misfires, and we finally, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's good to finally, finally connect. Um, you know, so when uh, the, the MAPS podcast, um, I have my own podcast uh, called It's All Happening, which is something else. But the MAPS podcast, we've only done a few original episodes in terms mm -hmm. of uh, recording new content. Most of them have been archival lectures that we kind of repurpose. But what I've kind of started off every um, uh, original podcast with is it's it's uh, kind of an icebreaker in that what I want to uh, ask you is was there a specific psychedelic experience that 
was the aha moment where you decided I'm going to make this my life's work. It was so inspirational, so life-changing, so just soul-shaking, earth-shattering, ego-deflating, whatever you want to call it, that you it, it, it transitioned in you inspiring you to make it your life's work. So really, I could give you a, you know, a lovely romantic answer and describe the sort of thing you're asking for, or I could be really boring and no. a lot more honest. Okay, and say, give me the honest one. The honest one is, I don't think there was really. Hmm. Um, my, obviously the first psychedelic experience I had when I was like 17, 18 years old was mind blowing in terms of, you know, opening the possibility of just, wow, this is fantastic. Look at these altered states and how much fun is that? And then obviously some recreational use after that and then MDMA after that and um, all of that going on. But my my interest in psychedelics in medicine has emerged slowly through seeing the lack of efficacy of treatments for my patients and the realization that these psychedelic states can offer something better. So it's partly the years of working as a clinical doctor without psychedelics that has moved me and nudged me towards psychedelics because I recognize that these tools really are the best thing that we could possibly have in psychiatry today. So it's been a gradual process of recognizing that through seeing how ineffective the traditional treatments are. Okay, so when you were working in the years before you started uh, integrating psychedelics into your professional practice, just working uh, traditionally, mm. was the absence of psychedelics, what was the intent there? What was your thinking? Was it just because the, the legality? Was it just the fear, the social perception? What I mean, what goes on within, uh, from your perspective, your perspective mm. within the field that doesn't have more efficacy involved i mean w what is it there okay well maybe what about if i give you a, give you a sort of potted history of how i came to psychedelics in Please. medicine yeah yeah so i had these you know as a teenager recreational psychedelic experiences and recreational mdma experiences and i have to you know it would be disingenuous of me to say i took lsd at 17 and realized this is what patients need because it certainly wasn't going through my mind. It was, right. it was more like, that's great fun. Let's do it again next weekend. Yeah. Um, and then I went to med school and went work, work my way through med school and then drifted towards psychiatry again, not with psychedelics in mind, but just because I found psychiatry mental illness by far the most interesting part of medicine. Um, and the most varied and holistic part of medicine as well. All other parts of medicine to me seems like, you know, just a broken bone lying in a bed with psychiatry. <laughs> it's, it's very holistic. It's not just a disease or a set of blood results. You know, it's a person who is a father or a child or daughter and they have a job and they live in a house and they have a career and they have dreams and aspirations and they have family and they have a history and they have a childhood. And, you know, and psychiatry encompasses politics and sociology and anthropology and philosophy and art and all of these things as well as brain science and neurons and blood. Um, so for me, psychiatry was, it was always going to be that, that I kind of merged into that as I went through med school. But because of my recreational psychedelic experiences, I was really into the psychedelic culture, but on a recreational point of view. So 
I was into literature. I was into Leary and I was into Groff and I was into um, McKenna and I was into psychedelic music, big time into psychedelic music. Um, and then as I got further into psychiatry and my, those two poles were apart, you see. So I was the kind of doctor working with my patients and then I was the weekend recreational psychedelic user. Uh, yes. And then, and then what I did when I went through psychiatry, I, because I knew about the work of the fifties and sixties and Osmond and everyone, I would always say to my psychiatric professors, um, do you know about the work of Groff and Anderson and Leary and why, why are they not in my textbooks? And whenever I got a psychi- psychiatric textbook, first thing I do is always go to the back and look up LSD. And either it would say nothing or a LSD is a dangerous killer drug. If a person, if your patient takes this dangerous substance, tie them down to the bed and inject them with Thorazine, you know, that would be it. So because I knew there was this whole history, I put it upon myself, try and educate. And none of my tutors could tell me, they would just say, well, I hadn't heard about that. Um, I wrote this paper in 2004 about the history of psychedelics in medicine and also highlighting the work that was going on at MAPS and Hefter at the time. And it got published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, much to my surprise. And it was the first paper on psychedelics in the British medical press since the 60s. And then I started going to conferences and very quickly found myself in this pretty small international community of psychedelic medicine. And, you know, you only have to go to two or three conferences and you've met everyone in the field. Um, So I started, and this is about 15 years ago, I started getting a really interesting melding together of what were two very polar opposites that I was careful not to mix. And then I started realizing, wow, this is great. I can actually enjoy and talk about psychedelics whilst being a doctor, as opposed to keeping the two poles apart. So it became a gradual melding, really. And then, as I said, coupled on top of that, this realization that here I am giving people these everyday psychiatric drugs and psychotherapies and they're not getting better so i've you know increasingly moved towards the idea that not only is it an interesting scientific or philosophical philosophical pursuit psychedelic therapies but actually it's what modern psychiatry needs and my patients deserve these treatments it would be you know people say this is controversial or unethical i would say it's deeply controversial and unethical to not explore this because they deserve it and you know i don't want to uh get too too into the weeds from the non-psychedelic conversation but why do you think from your professional experience and professional uh perspective and um, looking being on both sides of the fence now, sort of in, integrating mm-hmm. the, psych- the psychedelic medicines and then without the sort of just being stuck in the mud with these traditional drugs that really have very low success rates. Um, yeah, I mean, what 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 is the what is the nature of 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 belief there? Why mm-hmm. is it? Why why are we stuck in the mud there? Okay, so what what. As Because I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I've worked yep. for many years with children who are maltreated and abused. And I'm also an adult addiction psychiatrist. And so I've seen this cohort of kids who are maltreated and abused as children grow up through their teenage years, develop substance misuse problems and addictions, and then adults with mental health problems, um, depression, anxiety, and addictions. And it's all a very clear, inevitable trajectory that they take. 
And the question why are they stuck? It's because we are not treating the root cause of their problems. Mm. We are using in 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 traditional psychiatry maintenance therapies. We paper over the cracks with symptomatic treatments that are not curative. And the cure word is a word we don't use in psychiatry. We've become so used to psychiatry being essentially a palliative care um, profession. We, you know, if you go to your psychiatrist in your early 20s with a severe anxiety disorder or depression or addiction as a result of child abuse in your early years, there's a pretty good chance you'll still be going to your psychiatrist in your 60s or 70s. Now, that's rubbish. It's not good enough. And we as psychiatrists have become learned helpless. We've we've accepted that we can't cure people. We can symptomatically paper over the cracks with their symptoms. So, and the reason is we're not attacking the root cause. And the good analogy that I use is, and I talk about MDMA in particular being an antibiotic for psychiatry. What I mean there is that if you look at the infectious diseases and in the 19th century, they were killing humanity. We were losing the battle to infectious disease because we knew who got smallpox and tuberculosis and uh, infections after operations. And we wrote long books about it and classifications and epidemiology, but we didn't have a decent treatment. We patched them up symptomatically. So if you've got an infection, which is caused by a bug or microorganism, you can take paracetamol, it'll help, or ibuprofen, it'll lower the temperature, take away the fever and make you feel a bit better. But ibuprofen is not an antibiotic. It doesn't attack the bug. It just makes you feel a bit better and that's what we do in psychiatry so in answer to your question what we do is if the patient's a bit low make them feel a bit better if their mood is unstable give them a mood stabilizer if they can't sleep give them a hypnotic if they feel paranoid give them an antipsychotic but the root cause of all these problems is the trauma the the infectious disease which is the trauma and we don't use antibiotics we use symptomatic masking agents And what has become increasingly apparent to me is that the psychedelics combined with psychotherapy are the best thing we have that's closest to an antibiotic in psychiatry. It is a radical new way of psychiatric prescribing. It's the newest pharmacology in 75 years that we've had in psychiatry. It, it really does represent a new direction for psychiatric prescribing. And so that's, that's what really interests me. So when you use the phrase antibiotic, though, you are using it um, sort of metaphorically and talking about it's an antibiotic to the, the root cause of the trauma. Yeah, it, right. it, it, it attacks the bugs that are causing the temperature. It's not just putting down the temperature with, with a, a drug that attacks the fever. So temperature, uh, a fever, is a symptom of an infection. It's not the cause of the problem. And when we treat anxiety or depression with SSRIs, we're treating the fever, but we're not treating the bug. Hmm. And what the psychedelics do, unlike all the other drugs in psychiatry, is they actually get to the root cause. And then you don't need the other drugs. And that's what's interesting. Once you've cured someone, and and I still wince when I say that word because we're just not used to it in psychiatry. Once you've cured someone with psychedelics, they can come off all their SSRIs and sleeping tablets and the rest of it because they just don't need them. 
Right, right, right. There, there's been enough of a, I don't know, maybe what word to use here, psychic shift or physiological shift or yeah. whatever you want to say, where it can literally reprogram them to where they yeah. don't need that stuff. I mean, imagine going to your doctor with an infection and and she says to you, I'm not going to give you antibiotics. I just want you to keep taking ibuprofen for the rest of your life so your temperature stays normal. Yeah. You know, but we're going to leave the bugs in there festering away. That's what it's like when you take SSRIs. Right. It's just like it's 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 a it's a stopgap. So yeah. So and when you are working with with with, um, with subjects, and let's say there is um, a, you know a fair to high degree of of trauma going on, whatever whatever the cause of trauma is, if it's abuse or you know whatever that you could fill in the blank there and mdma is introduced how does the introduction of mdma expose the root cause of the trauma and get the patient in touch with it what's the connection what's the bridge there i think first thing to say is we haven't started the mdma study yet there there has not been a clinical study in the uk with mdma yet so i've i've trained in the um in MDMA therapy in the States, but nobody yet has been given MDMA in this country. So I can't say I'm doing that now. Um, we'll be the first people to do it when we start in the couple of months. Um, but I can talk about how it, how it works in that way. Yeah, please. What, what MDMA does is it's not that it necessarily brings out the trauma that isn't, isn't there or they can't get out. The trauma coming out is not a problem. Um, the trauma is coming out every day. Um, so it's not that it brings brings the trauma to the surface. The trauma is already on the surface. That's the problem. But what it does is it allows the patient to be with the trauma and not be scared of the trauma coming out. Um, it allows them to be alongside those terrible memories that they always try and avoid having. And therefore, they can do some work on those memories. So if you take a person with PTSD, and this is what all my patients are like, you know, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They're alcohol dependent, opiate dependent, self-harming, all sorts of medications. They're doing everything they can to not think about that day when they were six years old and their grandfather came into their bedroom. Everything they do revolves around, I'm not going there. And then you sit down. Then they sit down with their therapist and the therapist says, tell me about that night. You know, they run a mile. <laughs> right. So the problem isn't that the MDMA brings out the trauma. The trauma is always there. The problem is it's saying, yes, l- we know the trauma is there. Let's let it come out and let's actually be with it. And when the patient takes MDMA, what they say is, they say, wow, I've spent 40 years not thinking about these memories And now I can sit and talk to you about them in great detail for six hours. And they're still difficult and they're still painful. You know, this isn't ecstasy. I'm not in some euphoric, ecstatic rush. But this MDMA is giving me just enough strength to be with these painful memories long enough to talk about them, which is what I need to do. Because I've spent 40 years doing anything but talk about them. And here I am for the first time in 40 years talking about them openly for six hours. And so really, in a way, it's not that magical. 
all it does is it allows the patient to do the psychotherapy that they should have done 40 years ago but they've spent 40 years suppressing. Right, and we, and we, we have this sort of, uh, especially in the Western world, this idea of um, sort of associating um, traumatic, and I don't like using the word bad, but I will just in this case, but bad memories and associating mm. them with that being negative. Therefore, do not talk about it because that's bad. That must be yeah. negative, so I'm just going to you know, take these SSRIs and eat lots of McDonald's and shove it down, you know, but yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and I know with my own personal experience with MDMA and dealing with my own personal, in my case, it's, uh, it's been addiction, you know, that's been my trauma of my life is yeah. su substance abuse is that making friends with it. It's like, it doesn't have to be that bad. You can make friends with it and learn to love it and therefore let it go. Yeah. And, and this is the kind of concept behind mindfulness and, Yes. Which is a kind of, you know, a Buddhist type concept. And in a way, that's the antithesis of something like cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you know, CBT is um, very much about don't be depressed, you know? Right. So, you know, you're, you mustn't be depressed. <laughs> you, that, you mustn't that's be, bad. Right. Yeah. Don't be anxious. We're going to learn lots of strategies so you won't be depressed. Mindfulness is okay. So you're depressed. Let's be depressed. What's that like? So let's get alongside this and let it happen. And actually, you know, there's a lot there that's in common with the psychedelic experience. You know, with an LSD experience, you can't fight it. You can't say, I, I want this to stop. You have to just get in there alongside it and ride it because it ain't going anywhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so it's a similar thing. That This is where, this, where psychedelics come in, and particularly MDMA. It's like, here we go, you've got your trauma, and now we're not going to fight it today. We're going to let it come out, and we're going to be with it. Because this drug that is holding you, and I think of, I see MDMA as like this life jacket, or as a sort of bulletproof vest that you wear to protect yourself, to be with your trauma, as opposed to running away from it. Because without it, you just can't do the work. So... Right. You know, and you can't blame someone for wanting to avoid those painful memories. You can't blame someone for nulling themselves with alcohol or heroin. Those are, you know, alcohol and heroin. Are, I sometimes say this to my addiction patients. I say, look, if 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 your only option is you you want to pretend those those memories didn't happen, you want to blank them out, then good for you. Alcohol or heroin, good choice. They're going to work. They're really, they're going to just anesthetize you. But they don't work very well. They don't work for very long, and they're really dangerous, and they'll kill you. Yeah. So, but it's also unrealistic of me as your doctor to say, "I just want you to talk about this stuff with nothing on board to protect you." So this is where MDMA comes up, comes in. It's like this is still going to be difficult. This is not going to be ecstasy. This is not going to be euphoria. It's still going to be a trauma-focused therapy session in which you will cry and break down. And be in pain, mm. but with this drug on board, you can just about do it. And and I think that's the way the the, the medicine works. It it allows the recall of the memories without being overwhelmed by the negative pain. But it's not like it's not still there slightly. And and also, is there also kind of the element of the, the with the way these drugs work of of sort of changing your relationship with the memories to the scent to the point of not having them define you like in in my yeah. experience and this 
I, I don't mean this to be judgmental, but there are a lot of people who I see who have a lot of, you know, PTSD issues or, or mental health issues. They, those issues define them. They define their life. That is who they are. They are victims of it. And I mean, for good reason, I mean, shitty things happen to good people, whatever, but it, it becomes the defining experience that affects all other areas of their life. And the psychedelic experience to mm. me is like, well, it frees you of that. Like you don't have to be defined by, yeah. by this. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's more so than that. It doesn't just redefine and rebrand yourself, but it also rebrands the way you look at the world. And to illustrate this, I go right back to early childhood development and brain development. And when a child grows up in an environment in which they're surrounded by fear and painful stimuli, when they don't know when their caregiver is going to come into the room and is going to kiss them and cuddle them, do a jigsaw <laughs> with them, or whether they're going to punch them or burn them with a cigarette or rape them. When they don't know from one minute to the next, they grow up with an enhanced, what we call the amygdala, the fear response. It's a natural survival technique. You know, you grow up with the narrative, the world is dangerous, people are going to hurt you, trust no one. So you grow up with these negative views about the world and then about yourself you are a useless piece of shit. You are worthless. Mm. You are a slut. You asked for this. It's your fault. So you have these negative self-beliefs and you have this terrified negative world belief and you go on into adulthood carrying these. And it's very hard to shake someone out of this. Um, so rather than being able to shake themselves out of it, they can, they just null themselves with, with, with alcohol or heroin or they self harm or what frequently happens is they, they put themselves into dangerous situations. And the classic is that, you know, the abused child ends up in a relationship where their partner abuses them as well, because it's kind of better the devil, you know, it's almost in a way I sometimes Zach, I think of it as a kind of design fault in the brain um, our brains are designed to believe our parents and yeah. Yeah. trust that they're going to immerse us in a wonderful, beautiful world of love, protection, play and praise. And so our brains are kind of designed to say whatever experience you had as a young child, carry on doing that because that's what the world is like. It's kind of a design fault. And sometimes I just want to shake my patients and say, you are wrong, you know. It sounds really arrogant for me to say this, but you're wrong about yourself oh. and you're wrong about the world. The world is predominantly a lovely, beautiful place full of great people who are trusting and kind and charitable to one another. That is predominantly what the world is like. And you are a good person who deserves to be treated well and respected. And you're just wrong. And these wrong narratives about yourself emerged as a child as a survival technique, because if you hadn't developed these beliefs, you'd have died. If you didn't, hmm. you didn't, if you weren't suspicious and threatened by those people around you, you'd have died because they weren't feeding you. So good on you for developing this hard shell. It shows you're healthy, but now here we are in the real world as an adult. It's so hard and it's so stuck and it's so rigid that it's really holding you back because you've just got a, a wrong opinion about the world and self. And like you say, you're quite right. What the drugs do is they provide an opportunity to rebrand yourself and realize 
people can be trusted. The world can be beautiful. Yeah. And in a way, you know, a critic would say, well, you know, they're just high. Um, it's a artificial drug induced transient state. It's just the drugs talking. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and one would have to agree. Yes, it is artificial. Yes, it is drug induced, but you can reflect this with the patient. You can say, yeah, this is an artificial drug induced state. Six hours from now, you'll be back to your shitty world. Yeah. But what the experience does is it gives them a glimpse. It gives them a holiday away from that world. And perhaps if they're doing it just recreationally, then it is just a, a holiday and they don't learn anything from it. But if they're doing it in the context of psychotherapy, where their therapist is working with them on these, these dynamics, it's lasting. It brings about change in them. It shifts them into a new way of thinking about themselves in the world that then stays. So that's where the drugs are useful. Well, and, and I think if there's any, uh, you know, one uh, red flag or sort of do over a case study that I could sort of look back on. And I mean, I mind you, I'm sort of Monday morning, uh, well, and then the American phrase Monday morning quarterbacking it, like looking back on it with 2020 hindsight, cause I'm not old enough to have experienced the sixties, but that one of the big problems in the psychedelic experience of the 1960s was that there was no model for integration. There was the model for inter yeah. for for uh, weekend recreational use and and going to see Jimi Hendrix at the Fillmore and it's really far out and it blew your mind and hey that was really cool but there was no model for lasting integration now there is or, or where there was a model it was like the Leary model of don't bother going back to it at all just <laughs> blow it all up and you know <laughs> it was quite. Like, it was, it was quite black and white. It was like these drugs have shown us that the whole world sucks and it's, it's all rubbish. And that's a really brutal model to go back to, I think. So I think the message that I would have is, you know, don't not the message that, yes, drop acid and let's all live in chemical utopia forever. Yeah. More like, you know, you can learn stuff from this and then you can go back to your real world. You can still be a banker or a state agent. But with this experience on board, you don't have to throw it all out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. And I mean, the thing with with uh, with with Tim was that I mean that that model was, you know, I mean, context is everything because he yeah. was a product of the other side, mm -hmm. and up until that point, the other side had failed him. I mean, you know, traditional psychotherapy. Had, mm. had, had failed him. He saw he was seeing no results, and yeah. you know, in the second that the '60s happened, and what we refer to as the '60s now, then you know they weren't aware that it was happening in the same way that we are now. Yeah. And this cultural revolution sort of happened around him, so it was just his sort of yeah. well, you know, creating this us and them dynamic. But yeah. I think in the long run, he, 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 I would agree with you that he would agree with you that that was probably short-sighted but but in a, but also you know i have so much respect for tim because i also believe that that bomb had to happen absolutely you know? it did 50s america was so vacuously com commercialized and there didn't seem to be anyone apart from the few beats who were pointing it out it was it was falling on such deaf ears yeah. that you know he, i don't think tim could have done it any other way he couldn't have been gentle and worked with the man to shift things because it just wasn't shifting. It needed that dramatic bomb yes. of, you know, 
we're going to blow up the whole thing <laughs> but, right. because we because we can't reason with you. But the trouble with is that um, I suppose in hindsight, looking back, a lot of people felt that Tim therefore um, put back the field of medical research whilst whilst the cultural explosion that came out of it was so vital and important for mm. culture and arts and the growth of the ecological environment and um, movement and women's rights and gay rights. And, you know, we got to blow up this terrible system. That was a really good thing. But um, as one thing I always felt about Tim's work as I was growing up was he ruined it for the medics. And a lot of people feel that. And I'd be interested to know what your thought is on that. Cause I I've, I've always so deeply respected his work and his writing, which is some of the most beautiful erudite writing on psychedelics I've read. Hmm. Um, but it does feel as though he he did ruin it for the doctors, at least, even if he did a good thing for the hippies. Would you say that's a fair criticism? Well, again, you know, I, I the um, when I sort of get posed with this um, this question, you know, and I've had obviously a lot of time to to think about it. Yeah. Um, it's that it a it was not intentional. No. It was not intentional. B, context was everything. Because, again, what happened with him, specifically with him personally, not the movement, but with him as an individual, he very quickly got into trouble. You know, the trouble started happening very, very quickly. It wasn't like it was just a slow, gradual, you know, utopian sort of psychedelic panacea. It was like very quickly did it become uh, an anti-authoritarian crusade that was disrupting all of the you know the 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 institutional support mechanisms that were around him at the time so i mean he got fired yeah. from harvard um which was more ramdas's fault than his but anyway he got fired from harvard uh millbrook got busted he was on the run nixon was after him joints were it was just an onslaught of of being persecuted and none of that was intentional so yeah and it just happened so quickly and it was just pandora's box just kept unraveling and unraveling unraveling and you know i mean personally from just a, a deep personal level i think his reaction to that was you know i mean he was you know he was born in 1920 he grew up a roman catholic um uh, you know, in Springfield, Massachusetts, and uh, was a, a, a meat and potatoes Irish whiskey drinker. Yeah. Uh, you know, and his response to that was, fuck you. You want to get in, you want to fight? You know, let's fight. Um, and it was kind of ironically very not hippie. You know, it was, he was up for yeah. the fight. So I, I get that, you know, and I know I've heard it my whole life and, you know, and it's, and it's it's ironic that I'm the host of the Maps podcast because the you know they 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 spent a lot of time kind of distancing themselves mm. from from Tim, but um, you know, and and that's what I have to say about it. it yes, yeah. but it, you know, an- another interesting thing that bringing it back to where where what I learn about from this is um, I've also had this conflict throughout my whole career uh, in psychedelics. You know, do I in order to get um, uh, attention and to move these drugs forwards, I have to play the part of this very boring, sober, conservative doctor. Um, (laughs) And I have to talk about risks and I have to talk about safety and I have to say, yes, you're right, they are very awful, dangerous drugs, but 
Let's see if we can do this. But there's part of me that wants to just stand and shout from the rooftops, for Christ's sake, this is awful. This system is crap. We have to break down these walls, not doing it gently. We have to break some windows because otherwise we're just kowtowing to it. We're um, just we're, we're facilitating this awful situation. So part of me wants to be like Tim and make a lot of noise and break a lot of windows because that's the right thing to do. So I'm in a constant conflict about how about what's the best message. And this is something that's come up a lot in the last few years because I've actually got a lot braver as well. When I started talking about psychedelics in medical forums 10, 15 years ago, I, you know, I would never talk about my own personal experience with psychedelics recreationally. And I would be much more cautious. I'd have, you know, 10 or 15 slides all about risks and stuff, trying to show the crowd and also probably show myself that how aware I was of the risks. I'm much more blasé these days. You know, I, I'm quite happy to stand up in a room in front of 600 senior professors and psychiatrists and say, yeah, I've taken LSD. So what? <laughs> you know, because I just think I'm braver. I'm just like, come on, I'm not going to bow to this fear aversion. I'm not gung ho where there are risks, there are risks and we manage those and we're aware of them. We're not, we're not dangerous. We, we have safeguards, but let's not start this conversation with these are dangerous and useless and risky until, until proved otherwise. Let's start the conversation with these are useful and safe and applicable, but yeah, we'll also be aware of some of the risks. So it's just turning it around. And I think we need, I think I've been too gentle for the last 10 or 15 years. I really feel like being more vocal now. And I think, I think Tim, I, I, this, I, this is why I take a lot of inspiration from Tim in that respect. So I spent, I mean, I spent years <laughs> standing up in lectures and saying, we must not be Timothy Leary. <laughs> um, but you know, these days I'm much more keen to say, we need more Timothy Learys in medicine. Yeah, I mean, you just and, and, and you kind of proved your own point there, which I've and I've always thought about the, the psychedelic movement is that and especially these days, if more people came out of the closet mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, I mean, I could just take a very obvious mainstream example. I know it's kind of uh, pedantic, but like Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. now, LSD was one of the two or three most important yeah. things that I've ever done in my life. I mean, very basic. We all know that he was very public, but there are another hundred of those out there, you know, that, that have not yeah. been spoken. And, yeah. and to me, those are, you know, I know that's not research based, but you know, I mean how, you know, media and pop culture sort of changes the social narrative and changes the social, social construct. That's just as important as the research and the data that you people are like people like you are accumulating. It's like I would, got, I would almost argue it's more important because I, it's going to move it forward. Yeah. But in the way that people come out, what I think we need is stories of coming out which are normalized. So neither – we don't need stories of I came out and joined a hippie commune and left my job in the city and left my wife and kids yeah. and grew my hair long and now I speak to God every night through a mushroom. We don't need those stories any more than we need the I took LSD once and it and I glimpsed hell and it's the most dangerous thing in the world. We just need normalization. Yes. We need to see psychedelics represented in fiction, at, you know, on chat shows, on 
you know, in TV shows like Friends, where it's neither enlightenment and talking to God, but nor is it danger. It's just like, oh, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Took ayahuasca last night. Yeah, how was that? Yeah, great. Anyway, do you want to go to the cinema? You know, right. it's we need normalization. And if you look at other minority groups, like say homosexuality, um, we needed the placard waving street demonstrations of the 60s and 70s. That was a central part of the movement, breaking windows and shouting because this something had to be done and it was outrageous. So that was necessary. But what I think and where I think we've really started to move forward with homosexuality is not it wasn't 1670s. It was the 90s onwards where it's just become normal. It's just not a big deal. It's like, oh, you know that bloke Terry, the butcher? He's gay. Is he? No way. Anyway, what are you doing later? You know, so (laughs) it's the normalization. So and this is where I find myself sometimes, Zach, at loggerheads with the hippie community, because there are aspects of the psychedelic culture and hippie community that I don't think are helping to normalize psychedelics. I think they reduce accessibility and marginalize psychedelics into this weird oh. wacky craziness i i i'm and, I'm, I'm a deadhead you know i grew up as a, as a as a deadhead i mean that was my youth i grew up with the grateful dead and following them around and i mm. I, I know exactly what you're talking about as much of a deadhead as i am and i love the band and the music to this day i i can't say you know with a straight face that you know we helped the psychedelic movement mm. you know and like, i think <laughs> i think that's so I find sometimes I find myself like this pariah sitting on the fence because yeah. my straight-faced conservative doctor friends are like, you're mad. Why are you aligning yourself with these crazy people? You should study something nice and wholesome like SSRIs. And then my hippie friends, where I go and see them at the weekends, they're like, hey, man, you don't need to work with the man. Why are you talking to the pharma industry, man? We've got underground therapies. We don't need this shit. You know. And so I'm kind of a pariah in both courts. And so the difficult job I'm I've taken on here is how do we turn this um, seemingly controversial and uh, and, and dangerous and not publicly accepted thing into a medicine that's accepted? And this is where I get into an argument with my hippie friends, because they say we don't need to work with pharma. We don't need to do these research projects we just need to punch the air and shout it's my right to get high the cognitive liberty argument now what i say to them is look you've had 50 years to do that you've had 50 years to push that agenda and you've got nowhere yeah this is why we and this makes me sound terribly boring you know cut your hair put on a tie and then see if that works now and a lot of people say that's selling out i i say that's shrewd that's just clever. Well, that's getting know, it in through the back door, you know. I, because I, I tend to agree. Yeah, you know, and I, it's sad. You know, it is sad. Ideally, you should be able to walk into Ten Downing Street or the White House with long dreads and a tie-dye T-shirt, barefoot, and say, "Hey, man, we just need the right to get high. It's not fair." You should be able to do that, but in reality, you just can't. But if you walk through the door of 10 Downing Street or the White House in a white coat and a shirt and a tie and short hair and a clipboard of data under your arm, you just might get a foot in the door. Now, you may still be met with bigotry and conservative opinions that don't want change. But at least you're in the door. 
at least you'll get a foot in the door, but you're yeah. not going to get a sandal foot in the door if you don't try and adapt a bit. Well, so it's I, I, hard. And, yeah. You know, and as I said, people say this is selling out. I just think it's clever. Well, I think it's also um, adaptability, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of like it, I, 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 through the course of my life, I've been on both sides of this fence and felt differently uh, mm. on both sides of the argument rather and felt differently about which side to take but mm. like you said we've had 50 years to kind of try it this way and we ended up with donald trump as president in america yeah. so something what the fuck happened i mean mm. you know like that was not supposed to happen i mean this great yeah. you know and there was a great uh progression of of amazing ideas and breakthroughs and social liberties and you know, cognitive dissonance that was just, that was really an, an amazing result of the 1960s. There's no question. But yeah. we ended up with Donald Trump as president. So, I mean, yeah. who says I'm just using him as a metaphor for all the, you know, the fuck ups. So yeah. let, let's try I mean, it another you know, way. It's, it's 70 years since Albert gave us this. Yeah. 70 yeah. years. Yeah. And less than 2% of the UK population have ever taken LSD. That's outrageously poor wow. outcome. Well, An outrageously poor outcome after 70 years of this fantastic chemical that really can be so important for people. And after 70 years, less than 2% of the population have tried it. What I mean, if this was like – if you were paying an advertising agency to sell your product, you'd have sacked them long ago. Yeah, so that's not very if the hippies were the, were the advertising agency, they'd have lost this contract a long time ago. Yeah, so – we need we need a new approach because it just hasn't worked. Well, WhatsApp. I actually remember something you posted once on Facebook um, a, a while ago, within the last year. About um, it was sort of like a, you were making reference to your American friends who were talking about you know the marijuana laws in Colorado oh, or, yeah. or California, and you're like, "Hey, I live in the UK. None of this is even on the radar here. Yeah. We're not even any nowhere close to where you guys are." So yeah. what? What is that about Britain? Because, well, yeah, what, what's going on there? Yeah, so, you know, when the, the, the laws were coming in, in in California and you guys who got so used to medicinal cannabis and now recreational cannabis, and then people were saying, you know, it's selling out to big pharma and, you know, we don't like it being commercialized like this. And I can see that argument, absolutely. But in a way, I think it's almost like harping back to this romantic past. And my point was, look, stop moaning. I could go to prison for six years for the two grams of vegetable matter in a bag down my sock. Six years for that, you know? Yeah. And you're complaining about whose name it is above the dispensary door that you can wander into freely and legally buy this product. So, yeah, I I like the idea of it being a small cottage industry, but I don't think there's anything romantic about it being prohibited and illegal. Um, Going back to the gay rights thing again, it's almost like, imagine, you know, people, homosexuality was illegal till 1967 in this country, and you don't hear gay people harping back to the good old days when they'd get locked up for it, you know? There was nothing <laughs> right. there was nothing good about it. Yeah. And also going back to this argument that, you know, when some of my hippie friends say, if it's over medicalized and consume commercialized, we'll lose some of the magic. I don't think that's true. You know, has the gay community lost any of its magic or color or amazing culture? Because 
it's now something they can do openly? Not at all. It's 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 created a platform for growth and development and integration. So I don't think that if psychedelics were legalized and available on shop street corners, I don't think we'd lose the magic. I think that's just an over-romanticization. I think, and somebody said this, I was speaking at a conference recently at Breaking Convention, and someone put up their hand and said, Dr. Sessa, do you worry about the over-medicalization of psychedelics? I said, no, I worry about the under-medicalization of psychedelics. Hmm. You know, we are not, it, it, it's, it's it's paranoia to think we're going to lose something if we have these drugs available by pharma companies for patients. It, it you know raves, festivals, communes they ain't, they ain't going anywhere. You know they're still going to be there. Sure. But what we also have is me being able to dish out a blister pack with MDMA tablets to my patients who need it. So I don't fear that over-medicalization of psychedelics is going to ruin the wonderful subculture that exists around them any more than legalization of homosexuality ruined gay culture. You know, it's just a fallacy. Hmm. Those are really interesting parallels. I haven't anybody heard anybody kind of uh, bring the juxtapose the gay culture against the psychedelic culture. That's, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, and I, I agree. I don't think anything being mainstream in and of itself makes it, you know, less worthwhile in any category. I mean, you could, you know, I could take uh, uh, rock and roll, for instance, like, again, the Grateful Dead. I mean, they got really, really popular. Does that make them? Did they sell out? Was it were they no longer good once they started playing stadiums? No. I mean, there, there's yeah. a way to walk the line, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and also it's this issue of for my patients, you know, and yeah, for your patients who need the help, who are suffering. they need the help and they yeah. and they don't want to break the law. You know, and some of my friends like, you know, on the West Coast of the States who are underground therapists say to me, hey, man, we don't need to do this. You can just come to Esalen and, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for underground (laughs) therapy, you know. And I'm like, look, man, there are 60 to 70,000 cases of untreated PTSD in the UK who would benefit from MDMA. Lucky you over there in Esalen with your dozen patients who can pay loads of cash and sit in a hot tub and take MDMA. You know, I've got 60,000 patients who need this drug and we need to make this accessible on the NHS to people who don't want to buy into that subculture. And that's the other thing. When you look at the psychedelic subculture, you know, if you look and we're guilty of this in the studies that we do, because we've done studies with LSD and psilocybin and DMT and MDMA and ketamine here, we tend to, you know, decorate the room with Indian batiks and sitar music and incense you know when i look at my patients from western supermare who this which is a tough seaside town who have got heroin and alcohol addictions and severe ptsd these are hard shaven headed tracksuit wearing they smoke cigarettes they drink lager they fight they've got tattoos you know they would run a mile if i talked to them about chakras and sitar music (laughs) that is that is not their world yeah and the idea that they kind of have to buy into this hippie subculture genre to access these drugs because there's something about the psychedelic community that wants to keep it that way, I think that's outrageous. These guys need MDMA more than anybody. And why does it have to be Indian batiks on the wall? Why not a picture of Britney Spears or Manchester United? 
You know, if that's the if that's the power objects for my patients, we need to shift into their world rather than expect them to shift into a psychedelic culture. So I think there is so much. And the irony being that kind of a lot of these people in the hippie culture kind of feel they're really right on. But actually, they're really dogmatic. They're very stuck in this in this world. So we need to open it. We need to make these drugs accessible. They don't have to be these wonderful things that make you've got to go to Peru and throw up for four months to get to, to experience. <laughs> you know, they don't you don't have to grow your hair long and listen to the Grateful Dead to get into these. You yeah. can listen to whatever rock music you like and you can, you know, we need to bring it out of that hippie culture. Now that makes me sound very boring because actually I love the hippie subculture and they have much better parties and doctors the hippies do. <laughs> so, you know, I love all that, but I think we just need to get into the, get into the 21st century with this. And I think that means, I think that means to some extent turning our back on the visionary artists with their pictures of airbrushed dolphins diving through rainbows it puts people off. It does. It puts off, I mean, most people. I mean, like you said, there's a certain segment of the population that would, you know, would want to associate psychedelics with that. Um, but with, with the picture that you just described and that, that kind of very visual tapestry of just kind of the shaved head wearing lager, drinking blokes and you yeah. know, the seaside town where you're near, um, what, I mean, what what's next? What's the next step for for the UK? And uh, I'm, I'm I'm actually, uh, admittedly, I'm not up to speed on uh, on what's going on in the UK with this work. Well, what what we've been doing at Imperial for the last ten years is uh, lots of neurophysiology studies with um, LSD and DMT and ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin. And I'm really fortunate that I've been involved in those projects. Um, either there or other places. And going back to this question of, you know, admitting personal use, I'm in a really fortunate position because I can stand up in front of a crowd of doctors and say I've taken LSD, psilocybin, DMT, ketamine, and MDMA because I've taken all of those legally. And I think, I don't think there's another researcher in the world of my generation who can say that. I think there's lots of people who've been, who've done one or two of those studies but I think I'm the only one that's done them all. So, um, wow, that's amazing. Well, it's kind of quite, it's quite interesting that I can stand up and say that in front of a crowd because they were all legal. Now, um, then I don't need to talk about my personal experiences. I can say, yeah, I've taken these drugs. I say it to my patients. And, um, I think that that's quite helpful because it's sort of saying, you know, I'm okay. Um, so we've done those studies in the UK, but what we're now starting is clinical studies. And the MDMA study that we're starting in Bristol in a couple of months is um, the first clinical MDMA study in that's been done in the UK. And it's a study using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat people with alcohol dependence. So we're taking patients who are daily drinkers with alcohol dependency syndrome and they get a medical detox with Librium. And then at the end of it, when they're dry, after 10 days, they then come into our MDMA therapy course. And we, they, it's an eight-week course. And they, over the course of that eight weeks, take MDMA twice, interspersed with non-drug sessions. And then we follow them up at three, six, and nine months. Um, and we've chosen alcohol because... As an addiction psychiatrist, it's it's by far the most dangerous and pervasive and the most common um, drug. 
yeah. that that we have in the UK. Uh, the UK is it has a particularly peculiar, dangerous relationship with alcohol. Um, so, and also the 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 treatment rates are so poor. You know, alcohol dependence post detox, the relapse rates at three years post detox after treatment is ninety percent in some studies. Ninety percent of people are back on the drink within three years. And, you know, the way I see it is after 100 years of modern psychiatry, that is not good enough. That is an outrageously poor outcome. Yeah. And so if we can show through MDMA psychotherapy that we can get any better than that, then we, we've done something good. So we chose alcohol because it is so difficult and pervasive. Um, so that's what's coming up next. Um, there is also a psilocybin for depression study going on at Imperial. So that's the first clinical study with psilocybin. That's that's ongoing. That's well underway at Imperial. And I don't know of any other clinical studies coming up. There's there's quite a lot of you know physiology studies. Um, I guess the next thing is going to be the MAPS Phase Three, which um, I'm in a lot of discussion with with Rick because I'd really like the UK to have a couple of sites for that Phase Three study. But how does that apply? Because the FDA is American. How how does that translate over? Well, the purpose of doing the studies, the same model in the UK and other European states, is in order to get a European license. So, ah, got it. Um, that's and that's with a, the body called EMA, the European Medicines Association, which is the kind of European version of the FDA. So, at the moment, Rick's sites are very much firmly on getting the FDA approval by 2021 so you know the the phase three stuff is getting underway there in the states and we're a couple of years behind in the uk but you're optimistic uh i'm very optimistic for mdma for ptsd i mean so much work has been done and and you know maps are now at the stage of the phase threes yeah it's fantastic um, you know this is where it starts getting conspiracy theory like you know when they've done the phase threes and the data is in and the drug is effective and it's safe I can't see how FDA can say no because they would look so outrageously biased to say no. Um, if they then said no at that point, then the first thing Rick needs to do is hire a good lawyer because, you know, it's like you have no reason to say no. You can't just say no on the basis of a kind of political argument. If we've done, if we've jumped through all the hoops you've told us to jump through and there's the data you can't not license this. So I am very optimistic because I think it will work and it will be safe. Now, if we get to the point in 2021 where all the data is slapped onto the desk of the FDA and DEA and they still say no, then there's going to be a real political storm because they really need to justify why, because it, it won't be for lack of thorough data. Right, right. It'll clearly be the other agendas at work, which... Um I mean, I think at this point, I mean, one of the the good parts about living in the 21st century is that the, you know, the sheer breadth of an expanse of data that is available to us. I mean, not just with with this research, but also, um, you know, with uh, political agendas and the court systems. I think, um, you know, it's very it's it's so much harder to hide the the truth than than it ever was. You know, so yeah, I, I remain optimistic. I think this will come in under the wire just barely under the wire yeah i mean having said that now a, a sort of um a, a caveat to that is look at what happened with my boss and supervisor david nutt here in the uk in 2010 when 
he was asked by the government to write a report on MDMA ecstasy um, to assess its relative harms and potential benefits with a view to does it need to be rescheduled. And he wrote the report and I submitted um, a couple of papers to it about MDMA psychotherapy. This is back in, this is like eight years ago. Um, and he slapped that on the desk at Downing Street and said, here's the data. It's relatively safe, few harms, um, low rates of morbidity and mortality, and also loads of really positive beneficial medical uses. We should shift it from schedule one into schedule two because it's inappropriately placed. And the government had all this hard data, unbiased data from lots of experts in the field. And they said, ah, oh dear, that wasn't the result we hoped for. And he then said, this is outrageous. You asked me to do an unbiased report. Here's the result. You can't just ignore it. And then they sacked him. So he lost his job as the government chief government drugs advisor because he spoke out and said, this just illustrates how awful the drug laws are and how non-evidence-based they are and how the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 is a complete piece of fiction um, that bears no resemblance to actual pharmacology. So he said all this and they sacked him for that. Uh, now, of course, David Nutt's become a bit of a celebrity since then and he doesn't mind this because he stood up for science. So, But I think the problem there is this illustrates that data alone is not enough. Yeah. Um, and if governments are going to be bigoted and stuck in their ways, even with the data staring them in the face, they're going to find an excuse. And this is where it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Zach, that we also need cultural change. It's not just going to be the doctors in the white coats with the data. It's also got to be the script writers. It's got to be the pop stars. It's got to be the sportsmen. Yeah. It's got to be the cultural figures. We need an outing and a normalized outing. We need everyday people to say, yeah, I smoke weed, so what? I take, you know, I take LSD a few times a year. Um, I'll take MDMA every now and then with my wife and it brings us close together. You know, we need these positive, normalized stories of safe use of psychedelics because that, that I think the government find that even harder to resist than data because then they feel they're really going against the populace if they do so. Oh, well, Ben, this talk has been super, super inspiring, and I, I've, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to connect. Thanks for yeah, um, thanks too. for coming on. Yeah.